You're listening to another episode of Heatwave Radio's Classic Movies Live, the show where we talk about movies, and we do it uh, pre-recorded, so you're not hearing this live. But you could be if you were in my room right now. Uh, today, we are once again tackling a director we have never talked about yet, and today's director is Hayao Miyazaki. Today, we're going to talk about our first Studio Ghibli movie, as well as... Um, we're going to talk about a little, a little bit about Studio Ghibli in general. Uh, we've got some, some news on the current state of movies, or at least we discuss it briefly. And we are, uh, and we also have a few exciting developments to the show. So stick around until the very end to uh, hear how we're going to try and um, work some stuff into the show going forward. Uh, I'm sure it's a million times more exciting than I'm making it sound. Anyway. Our movie today is Castle in the Sky, which, you know, if you haven't seen it, you can listen to this entire podcast and there are no spoilers. We, we never even got it. We completely forgot to spoil this movie. So there you go. Here's your anti-spoiler warning here. Literally none. Uh, let's, let me see if I can find the theme for Castle in the Sky. That's going to be what's coming up next is either the theme from Castle in the Sky or just a song from Castle in the Sky. Probably the theme. I think it's a pretty iconic theme. Yeah, it's a pretty iconic theme. I'm remembering it now. There you go. So here it is. Here's the theme from Castle in the Sky. You're listening to another episode of Heatwave Radio's Classic Movies Live. Um, you know, by the next time we record, I'm going to know what episode number this is. I've been keeping track of them because I really want to. I really want to hit when we when we get to 50. We're coming up soon. It's not this one for sure, but this this might be like 46. This is we're getting there. Um, but anyway, we are nearing our we're nearing our 50th episode, which means. Oh, man, I guess, like, you would think that that would mean that we've been doing this for a year, but I guess we must have... Oh, yeah, we took basically all of last summer off, so that would do it. Um, yeah, and we started pretty late in the... We started in last February, right? Well, that's the thing, is we started last... Either last February or last January, but I was thinking, like, if we'd been doing... If we'd been hard doing one every week, then by this time we would be over 55 episodes, just because that's how many weeks are in a year. But, like, we did skip all of last summer... And I think we may have taken a few weeks off in between. Our release schedule has been hectic. We uh, will hopefully fix that in the future, but it's just, it kind of is what it is. We're a very minimal crew. This is how it works. But um, yeah, we are nearing the end of summer of 2020. 
movie theaters are starting to open up again. They're, I think starting in two weeks, we're going to get movies back in the theaters. And one of those, as of right now, it could, some movies have already been jumping ship, but like, as of right now, one of those movies that's coming out in two weeks is New Mutants. And I am so excited to talk about New Mutants when we get there. It'll happen. Maybe. That's the I thing. Really, I am in the cap of it's not happening. I promised Jeff already I will cut my I will I will castrate myself if it does come out. Yeah, so I'm and you also see very biased. <laughs> until until today, uh I was the only one who knew that. So now you now that that is public knowledge. So now we all are holding you to that. So this is this may be true, but I still I know it won't come out, dude. Like on God, I swear. You know what the least surprising news to come out in the last couple of weeks is though? What? Avatar 2, 3, and 4 have been delayed. Yeah, I think people should just assume they're going to be delayed at this point. I don't see why anyone would <laughs> go into it being like, this movie's like, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it in theaters. I guess same thing with New Mutants, though. I was going to say, the only thing that gives me any confidence that Avatar will at some point release is if New Mutants comes out. If New yeah. Mutants releases then I do think that Avatar 2 will happen eventually. One day. I think Hopefully. it's shot, though, too. Like, at the very least, they were filming it, weren't they? Avatar 2? I think so. Like, I think they'd started production. Maybe they hadn't started, like, yeah. filming. I think I saw they finished filming the underwater scenes. And, okay. And then they were, they were mostly in post-production with some research, reshoots having to be done. Um, since I, I believe most of the movie happens underwater. Oh, weird. So okay, like but I guess, I guess I say weird, but that's not surprising considering James Cameron has been like all about the deep sea for the last 10 years or so. Basically, since Avatar 1, he definitely had some idea for Avatar 2, 3, and 4 and was just like extremely passionate about it. Yeah, I, yeah, I really say, hope so. That's, that's like... That's probably the only reason I am actually interested in those movies because Avatar 1 was fine. It was a good movie. It, I, it, it didn't grab me enough that I care that much about it. But Avatar 2, 3, and 4, I mean, they're sequels to a movie I didn't much care about. But they are clearly, there's clearly so much passion that James Cameron is putting into these. And so I'm excited to just, I'm always excited to see when uh, filmmakers really passionate about what they're making. Like, that's what made Velocipaster one of the best movies I've seen this summer for me. Yeah, you can, you can this, it's a very obvious tell. I would say James Cameron is also, uh, or at least when it, he does, because he doesn't need to make movies to make money, right? He's already very, very rich. Um, and he's, he's, he very rarely makes a sequel to his movies. So, I mean, I, specifically especially for sequels to a movie he's made so he i think clearly, he has some cool stuff he clearly feels like he has a story he really has to tell yeah and so exactly. like i don't know what that story is but if he's if he feels this strongly about it that he's gonna not release any movies until he can get avatar 2 done potentially never then like he means it whatever it is Exactly. Well, speaking of passionate filmmakers, we have a movie today by a very passionate filmmaker. Yes. Uh, this what is, I can tell. Yeah, this is, I don't think, this is, I think, our first Japanese movie we're going to do today, and hopefully one of several. Um, 
and actually hopefully one of several by this director. So this director came up in the 70s and 80s in the anime industry, especially the 80s. That's where he really got going with um, a movie actually called The Castle of Cagliostro. It was, a, it was a Lupin the Third movie. And I think it's to this day the best remembered Lupin the Third movie. Anyway, the guy's name is Hayao Miyazaki. He is, I believe, one of the only... He might be the only Japanese director ever to win an Academy Award. I'm not 100% sure of that, but he is definitely the only Japanese director to ever win an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, because that usually goes to Disney. And, I mean, depending on how you want to see it, his Academy Award for Best Animated Feature did kind of also go to Disney, but, like, that's neither here nor there. Um... Anyway, Hayao Miyazaki, who uh, in the late, late 80s founded Studio Ghibli with like, I don't know if it was his best friend, but it was like his, another animator of like his, his caliber. Um, When did they found it? They founded it in 1985. It's founded by Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata. And like at the very beginning of Studio Ghibli, they basically would release films alternatingly. So it would be like Hayao Miyazaki, then Isao Takahata, and then Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata. And it feels like they, I'm pretty sure that they, I mean, not not strictly, but I'm pretty sure that they like um, more or less had their own teams. So they had a very, very quick release schedule too for the first, actually since they've existed. They've gone dark for a while now, but uh Throughout the 90s, they were releasing one movie pretty much every year. Yeah, this well, this movie came... The movie we're talking about today, uh, Castle in the Sky, came out... Well, I, I guess if it was founded in 1985, it came out a year after the the studio was founded. Unless they started pre-production before this, they founded the studio. Honestly, but either way, that's in, insanely impressive for an animated feature. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they started before, but also Studio Ghibli, from what I remember, their process is quite quick. Like, it's it's kind of astonishing how quick it is because it's also extremely detail-oriented. Like, Hayao Miyazaki would pour over every frame of his movies and still, like, they would turn around, they would turn out movies very, very, like, that one-year turnaround time is not that far off from like what it actually takes them to make a movie. It was probably for most of them, you know, two or three years, but they were very, very efficient. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, well, this, this uh, attention to detail, I think is especially important in animated features. Yeah. Um, which is what really, I think helped them take off. Uh, I don't know at the time, I don't know what Disney movies were coming out in the eighties, right. For this to really compete with. Cause this was kind of like in the lull of Disney movies, I believe, before the, the resurgence in the 90s. Yeah, and I, don't, I actually don't know. I feel like these movies would not have been huge hits in the States anyway. So I don't know what exactly they were competing with, because I don't know what the anime movie scene in the end of the 80s looked like either. Because that was probably closer to their um, competition, because like... A lot of all of these movies eventually came out in English, but I don't think any of them really made a mark in the American market until Princess Mononoke in 1997. Yeah, so it took quite a while for them, I guess, to truly become mainstream and then, I guess, get Hollywood's attention too. Yeah. um, And I think that's where they really, because nowadays when you when I hear uh, an anime uh, 
anime feature, I, I always think of Miyazaki, one of Miyazaki's movies, and I've heard that name so many times. Yeah. But especially for a filmmaker I've never, who've, whose movies I've never seen before. And that's especially rare when it's for an animated feature, because I, I feel like directors in, in animation rarely get the recognition they deserve. I was for thinking their, for their the, the, the closest I can think of to um, the closest other animator I can think of that, or the only other animator whose name I can think of that's as close to being as big of a superstar, even outside of the animation world as Hayao Miyazaki is Don Bluth. And like, when I say close, he's a distant second. Don Bluth? I've never heard of him. Exactly, right? <laughs> so, like, so he, if I point out a couple of Don Bluth movies to you, you'll go, oh, yeah, okay, I know the style, I know what you're talking about. Because he did The Land Before Time, he did Dragon's Lair, um, he did uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, I think, he did Fifle and American Tale. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, like, still... you know the movies, and I some mean... people, and like his name is known, but he's nowhere near as big of a superstar as Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki. I would compare him. Uh, well, I don't know how common. Like, have you heard of John Lasseter? Um. Yeah, he's one of the Disney yeah. guys, right? Yeah. Well, he was like he he founded. He was one of the, the he was the creative lead of Pixar until from the start until recently, and he directed like the first Toy Story. Stuff, but see, uh, the reason that I didn't say John Lasseter is because when I think Hayao Miyazaki, I think of Hayao Miyazaki movies and I think of a specific style. When I think of uh, John Lasseter, I think of Pixar, but and, I don't actually think of anything specific. And uh, okay. maybe that's maybe that's a character flaw on my part. But like um, with Hayao Miyazaki, I have a specific image of what I'm thinking of. With John Lasseter, I think of the guy who founded a company. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I actually can't really, I couldn't really give him a style unless, I guess, Pixar as a whole is his style, which isn't really fair. It's not really fair, but like, it's not completely wrong, not wrong. either. Pixar yeah. does have a specific style to some degree. So. The other one I would maybe consider are, uh, who, who, oh, what are their names? They did Spider-Man and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Uh, Lord and Miller. Lord and Miller, although I don't specific, like, I, I mean, I'm nitpicking at this point. That is correct, but I don't consider I consider them two filmmakers that I really admire. I don't necessarily associate them exclusively with animation, which maybe I should because I guess they did Lego Movie, they did uh, Spider Man, and they did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and those are probably their biggest hits. And I know that they've tried to do live action, but the only thing that I know for sure that they did was Solo, but they got fired from it. Uh, yeah, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. And a big reason why I think a few people actually know who they are. So, yeah. Well, they did a 21 and 22 Jump Street. I don't know if you oh, mentioned that. Oh, right. I, I did not. So, okay, there but, is... Uh, they did branch out beyond uh, beyond animation then. Yeah, which might be probably why they I know of them. But yeah, anyways, uh, cast, so we're talking about Castle in the Sky today. Miyazaki's yeah, is... first feature-length film, at least part of... No, this is... Yeah, as part of Studio Ghibli. He did one before this, okay. two before this, actually. Yeah, and uh, when you want to tell us a bit about like the plot, um, why don't you take why don't why don't you take the plot? I'll uh, I'll come in and see if we got the same plot from this. I feel like there's it's a fairly simple movie, uh, but I also don't know if we saw the exact same movie. Kind of, uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. 
that's fair. I yeah. Okay, we'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, from what I remember, it was there is a an orphan girl named Sheeta who who falls from a blimp after being attacked by pirates, and she has this amulet that helps her fly. And this this amulet, um, she later finds out is part of, or actually, I guess she knew it from the start, but it's part of uh, the remnant a remnant of the the castle in the sky or the city of Lupita which is a, a city that floats in the sky. And uh, she, she meets a, a boy who saves her named Pazu. Yeah, Pazu. And essentially they kind of, they, while running away from pirates and the army, they go on a quest to find the, the city in the sky um, before the others can. That's kind of like a good, <laughs> like, uh, what's the word? A, a basis for the story. Yeah, more or less. Although, I mean, that is, yeah, that's that's basically what happens. I would say the only caveat there, and this might be a spoiler, but I really don't think it is. They go on a, the, they very, very early in get captured, and they're not really trying to find the city before the bad guys, because them and the bad guys are getting there at the same time. Oh yeah, that's a that's a fair point. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not gonna lie, my my attention kind of faded out here and there because uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of this movie. But we'll, we'll get into that later, I guess. Yeah, um, that is that is the basic plot of this, and uh, I thought that um, honestly, my biggest problem with this pl- with this movie was the fact that there wasn't really that much more to the plot. It was sort of an adventure to find this castle in the sky. And they had this big world that should have been more interesting than I found it to be. Um, they just sort of got to this castle, they did the thing, and then they left, more or less. Um, I mean, again, no spoilers there. But like, it just sort of felt like a series of things that were happening, and I didn't really understand the weight of any of them. Yeah, I, I think it kind of, well, I, I guess, I don't know. It, it felt very much like the plot felt very anime-y, if that makes sense. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, um, I would, what I want to say, and this isn't, this isn't fully accurate. It's the wrong word. I want to say this, the plot felt directionless. It wasn't because it was very clear where it was going all the time. It just sort of felt like it was going where it needed to go instead of there being a hard reason for anything to happen the way it did. Yeah, they were, uh, I guess a lot of the momentum of the plot was kind of instigated by outside forces. Mm-hmm. Aside, because I guess the, the unfortunately, I, the, the main characters are kind of, well, they're, chi- they're kids and they're, they're very innocent. And I guess it's hard to give uh, children in a movie like, as hard of a motivation as as adults in my opinion i think it's harder because like kids are usually more carefree and they don't they're not usually like i want to go on this amazing quest um but then i guess you also have pokemon that also does that and works in that sense so now uh normally here's a little here's a little behind the scenes for everyone normally before we talk about these episodes we very briefly these episodes are fairly unscripted i mean I don't write anything hard. I don't write down a hard script for my parts of this episode for sure. And I don't think Pierre does either. 
But before we uh, talk about these episodes, we normally like to go through sort of the order of what we're going to talk about so that we have some kind of structure. And we did that for today very briefly. Uh, there wasn't a lot that either of us wanted to talk about. The reason I bring all this up is because I'm going to spring something on you, Pierre. Okay. I think, what do you think the themes were of this movie? Because while I was watching it, I didn't really get very much out of the themes. But I think the more I think about it, the more I'm starting to at least kind of understand what this movie might have been trying to convey. I don't entirely know. And I think that was the problem. Like, I I guess a part of it was evil (laughs) people that are greedy are bad. Um, which is unfortunately a, a very tired trope that I've seen many times before in, in animated children's specials that are much shorter than this. So, yeah, I, I, I literally could not think of another theme than that. And maybe that's why I, I had trouble with this movie. I think, as I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking about some of the other Studio Ghibli movies that I've, talk, that I've seen... And I actually think that we should at some point revisit Studio Ghibli and talk about maybe more than one movie at a time. Because what I'm thinking here is Studio Ghibli, a lot of their movies are coming-of-age stories, usually coming-of-age stories of younger girls. And they concern sort of a, a loss of innocence, but in a bit of a hopeful way. Like, the characters in the movie grow up, but they never stop having that like childlike sense of wonder kind of uh i'm just thinking of things like my neighbor totoro and um kiki's delivery service like in my neighbor totoro the main characters are dealing with some pretty unfortunate family issues nothing like abuse or anything but their family is going through a rough time and through um their interactions with this mystical creature totoro they end up sort of dealing through going through that trauma in a healthy way in Kiki's delivery service, it's about a girl who, uh, you know, up until a certain point, kind of has everything made for her, not in a way that she's a brat or anything, but she never really has to worry about anything. And then all of a sudden, she's left entirely on her own and just has to rely on the help of strangers, basically, and ends up growing as a person because of it. That's very similar to how Howl's Moving Castle plays out. And um, basically, I think this movie is kind of doing roughly the same thing just it's something that gets handled a little better in later studio ghibli movies because i think in castle in the sky it's very much a coming of age story for its two main characters pazu and did you say her name was shita yeah pazu and yeah pazu and shita um because they're they're kind of just being dragged through this story they have they have agency insofar as Sheeta is probably the reason that like anyone can even find Laputa. However, they kind of lack agency in that they are along with the pirates and uh, the pirates themselves get captured by a, I'm not really sure what they are, but like a paramilitary force. And then they're just sort of along for the ride. So um they're very passive but just like the things that they experience are showing them it's it's a very interesting like passive coming of age story in a way because the things they're experiencing are informing what kind of people they will be when they grow up but they aren't 
actively doing very much growing themselves until you know specific scenes near the end and near the beginning yeah that that was definitely like i, I definitely think you need a pat uh, a more active protagonist it just i mean like the, there were points in it where like pazu uh ends up uh like he 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 takes more interest in the plot when he goes to try to save shita with the pirates right Mm-hmm. for example like stuff like that was kind of cool and there was like some cool elements of you know like teaming up with the bad guys i guess is kind of interesting or at least the predetermined bad guys i think it was i think the teaming up with the bad guys is sort of a way of showing i mean maybe this is a tired trope in cartoons but this was their way of showing like the people who seem to be the bad guys aren't actually always the bad guys and the people who don't seem to be the bad guys sometimes are because the paramilitary force that captures the pirates doesn't seem like the good guys for long, but they are kind of introduced as being good because they are against the pirates. So it's like, it's not much of a reason that they're good, but they are, that is sort of a, I guess, subversion of norms, not necessarily expectations at that point. Yeah, I I guess I, I guess I, I also I'm I'm honestly like kind of a sucker for that kind of plot development. Um I I like it when the villains have no team I like the the most recent movie I can think of where they kind of do that is Captain Marvel. Um mm-hmm. where where like the villains turn out to be not as well, I guess in that case the villains were actually the good guys. So it was, it was much more extreme of a turnaround, but I personally love that kind of stuff. I wouldn't say it worked amazingly in this movie because I I guess I didn't really love any of the characters. I thought I thought the main pirate, the mom in the pirate group, was was pretty interesting, and she was fun to watch. And their their shenanigans were kind of funny. Yeah. I, in some ways, I do wish they actually took it more extreme, and that like this movie felt like it was bursting with imagination in some cases. Like right, like the I really like like honestly, I do like the concept. It felt think- very childish adventure and like capturing the imagination of a child when you're saying that you wish this movie was more extreme i think like i agree with that i i don't know how it could have been but i think um the way that i perceived this movie is everyone in this movie was looking for the castle in the sky either because um they just wanted the treasure of seeing but they either wanted to just discover this weird thing that people had been talking about but they'd never seen they wanted treasure or they actually had a vested interest in taking it over and thereby ruling the world. And so it's like, you have, your motivations are curiosity and pure evil. Where I think, <laughs> like, I, I think that in, if, if um, what you're saying, like in Captain Marvel, for example, when they got that, um, that twist that the bad guys were actually the good guys, the motivations were a little more... Um, they were a little more distinct and they were a little less flaky. Like the good guys in that movie weren't the good guys because they were curious and wanted to explore. They were the good guys because they were an oppressed group who had been at war with these people until their entire civilization was basically on the verge of collapse. So like they had a vested interest in finding this thing where in castle in the sky, if the pirates just decided that they didn't care about the castle in the sky anymore, They'd be fine. They'd still be pirates. They could go do something else. Yeah, it didn't feel... Honestly, I thought the curiosity part of the film was enough. That's what I was kind of interested in. I didn't like how there were so many different vested interests in it. Because honestly, yeah, I didn't see the importance of 
Like it's a floating castle. Like it, it inspires curiosity. I don't like how it became this like Death Star like super weapon. Exactly. Um, and that's what it that's kind of like I maybe maybe my problem with it is that the uh the evil character. Um he specifically knew that he wanted to use this as a super weapon. Why couldn't he just also be curious about it, but for evil reasons? Because yeah. His, his yeah, his motivations for it were extremely focused, where everyone else's wasn't because they didn't know what to expect. Yeah, and then that was just kind of especially once we I didn't like how we found out that Cheetah was the princess pretty early in the movie. I I believe, right? Yeah. It was like in the first uh at the end of the first act, I would say. So like that that kind of I think would have been an interesting element to keep in for later. Uh, I'd say the actual city in the sky was actually kind of disappointing to see. Um, I guess it's hard to pull off like the hype for it because everyone wants to see it, right? Yeah. But me myself, because it was it was like I I can't remember why, but it was it was completely abandoned for some reason. Um, I mean, remember? it was basically just a dead civilization. I don't really know exactly, but like, yeah, it was just ancient. That's all it like, was. Like, it might have been interesting if it was, like, an Asgard or something like that. Like, maybe. I'm not sure. I just, there was, I think there was a lot of potential for stuff, but also not in that they that they seem to just want to keep it very simple to focus on maybe the technicals, which is understandable. I think the stuff they did right was pretty good. Like, I thought the animation was cute. I wouldn't say it was amazing or anything, but it was, like, it was interesting. Um, Kind of reminded me. I, I told Jeff during this uh, the way the the characters moved and the the physics kind of reminded me of the Batman series, uh, the animated series from the nineties. Oh yeah. So like it was kind of cute animation. I thought that some of like the 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 designs were really. I love those flying machines that were designed like bugs. Like the wings mm-hmm. were designed like bugs. Those were cool. The the start kind of. Unfortunately, I think it puts you off to like a really fun and interesting start. Maybe not fun, but like an intense start that felt pretty mature. And then it, the movie feels like it kind of gets kidified after that. Well, I think like the start has a bunch of shenanigans. And more importantly, it has a bunch of fun characters. Where the longer you go into this movie, uh, the only fun characters that remain are the main characters and the pirate lady. Yeah. So, like, you end up getting a lot more serious characters that honestly don't even want to be on screen because, like, the military guys are just there to be bad. Yeah, and there was no interesting, like, elements at all with the army guys. So, which I, I guess, uh... I, again, like, it's, uh, I guess, kind of part of what they were trying to do. Um, just make I it think... very simple as possible. Yeah. Um... There's a movie that, the more I think about it, the more this movie reminds me of another movie that I've seen that I think does what this movie was trying to do better. And I don't know if it's... Well, I mean, the movie does it better because I think the story in general does it better. This movie reminds me a lot of the story of Treasure Island. And specifically, it reminds me of the movie Treasure Planet because I think Treasure Planet does those motivations a lot better. Every single person who wants to find Treasure Planet wants to find Treasure Planet because they don't know it actually exists. They're just like convinced that it might and they want to see what's there. And like there are bad guys in Treasure Planet, 
but their motivation is also just that they want to find treasure planet and get the treasure, which I think, I think everyone's motivations in that are just on a much more equal level, which I think really matters when the, especially when the planet or Island or castle in the sky that they're going to is as ill-defined as it is in this movie, because we see the castle in the sky and we see that there is a whole world there to explore, but this movie does not have time to explore that world. Yeah, and like that's when the plot gets really heavy too. So it's kind of unbalanced in that sense. I, another one, when you, when you said Treasure Island, I thought of National Treasure, which also kind of has the same... Uh, it's kind of National Treasure 2 specifically. It, it's very similar in that I thought... The villain. I really, I actually really like the villain in National Treasure too, because their their villainous intentions were very relatable and clear. And in, in that they they wanted to find the island for the chance for their family to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that feeds into the themes more of exploration. Where if you if you have this explorative movie that ends up turning into like an evil and like take over the world plot or something similar to that, it's just very uneven and it it kind of defeats the the point of the movie i guess like yeah. clashing themes if that makes sense so yeah yeah so like i i just say overall like a cute movie uh unfortunately it's very much a movie for children though i i wouldn't watch it again and i i didn't have much interest during the movie but i i, I think it shows potential for more in the future i would say that this movie uh like if and when I have kids, I will absolutely show them this movie as an introduction to Studio Ghibli. For anyone else, I would not recommend this as an introduction to Studio Ghibli because it's nice and fun, but it doesn't... I just don't think it's as good as a lot of their later stuff. That's very fair. So what, like, what would you say is like... I guess you've seen more. What would you say is the better starting point? The best, so the best Studio Ghibli movie that I've seen is Spirited Away. That's not the best starting point because everything from there, like everything is worse than Spirited Away. Not by much. Uh, I would say that the best starting point is My Neighbor Totoro. And if you're feeling, oh, if you're feeling really, if you're feeling like you want to get the full Studio Ghibli experience right away, watch My Neighbor Totoro as a double feature with Grave of the Fireflies. Depending on how you want to feel when you're done, uh, switch that order up. Interesting. All right. Well, maybe so, my next Ghibli movie will be that. Because um, that is actually that's actually more or less the way that Studio Ghibli was introduced to the world, as my understanding is. Castle in the Sky came out, but then Grave of the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro came out on the same day, and I believe they were in some places shown as a double feature. Uh, My Neighbor Totoro is a very classic Hayao Miyazaki movie about two Japanese, two two younger Japanese girls out in the countryside that move to a new house and, you know, deal with all the stuff that comes with moving to a new place. Uh, And like I said, they're also going through some family issues, not abuse issues, but family issues. Uh, Mm. Grave of the Fireflies is directed by Isao Takahata, who's whose works for Studio Ghibli are typically much more adult-oriented. And Grave of the Fireflies is one of the most depressing movies I've ever seen. It's about uh, 
it's about Japan at the very end of World War II, specifically two kids that have like just escaped from one of the cities that was very close to where one of the bombs dropped. Oh, damn. It is extremely heavy. And like when I watched those two movies together, we watched that one last, which, you know, that puts you in a specific mood going to bed. You don't really want that. Yeah, that's a fair point. I will probably avoid that before sleep. Um, but it sounds interesting. It's cool. It's cool to hear that uh, Studio Ghibli does definitely evolve to more mature content. I would say this movie. Yeah, I would say that probably other very good starting points are Whisper of the Heart, which is like a cute tween movie, and uh, Howl's Moving Castle, which is incredible. That's another one of that's very close to being my favorite yeah except okay, so. you know spirited away exists yeah <laughs> which is i think you the stereotypical best movie it's hard like I, I don't want to say that's my favorite one but it is the best yeah um yeah i would like to talk about more studio ghibli in the future because there it, it is such a good studio with such good stuff and castle in the sky overall i would still say is good it's not, you know, it's it's good in the way that, no, I can't say that. That's mean. But it is, <laughs> it is, it is very good. And it's just, well, it is, it's good. It's not very good. And most of the Studio Ghibli movies I've seen have been very good or better. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, I guess, what would you, yeah. what would you rate it in total? What would you, what would you say? I would say probably a solid five, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd say about um, the same. Like that's that's my average. It's it's definitely a movie. It wasn't a it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It's all right. I so. probably should watch this movie again uh, to get a better opinion. Like I gotta say, I was zoning out for a lot of it, and that is I want to say that's mostly the movie's fault. I did watch it late. Maybe I was tired, but like I do think wow. that me zoning out was not entirely just because I was, I had had a long day or something, but <laughs> yeah. you know, I would like to give this movie another chance, especially with, after thinking about it, I think I can kind of identify some themes and maybe there's more that I missed, but in general, like there are much better movies and I wouldn't say I was disappointed. I just would say that I wasn't exactly like any wow. more than whelmed either. Yeah. Well, anyways, um jeff do we have a new we have a new vehicle for picking our new movie do you want to tell us yes about we that? do we're gonna try and uh we're gonna actually try and start releasing these fully in order now because sometimes i haven't as i'm sure people have picked up on since i think we said our next movie is apocalypse now and then mulholland drive came out or something <laughs> uh but like we're gonna start releasing these in order if we can, and we have a new device in order to do it. We have a wheel of movies. I'm gonna just run out real quick and get our wheel of movies because it is a physical thing that I have on a different computer. So Pierre, why don't you say a little bit about this device before I come back and announce what's all on it? Sounds good. So yeah, so from now on, uh, in order to make the movie selection process a little more interesting, we have a wheel of movies that we're going to pick that has certain categories that will, I guess, if not tell us the exact movie, help encourage us in a certain direction. And 
the way that I've been thinking about this is recently, uh, with there being no new movies out, this will change very quickly. So, you know, we might start getting back to new movies again fairly soon. And potentially, we'll see, maybe we'll just start talking about new movies again exclusively. I don't know. I've really liked talking about old movies. But uh, if we're going to keep talking about old movies, we want to make it important old movies. So uh, when we're talking about these movies, so far what we've been trying to do behind the scenes is pick movies that are in, that are influential in some way. Like when we did Apocalypse Now, we had never talked about a Francis Ford Coppola movie before. When we did Rain Over Me, we'd never talked about an Adam Sandler movie before. Is that necessarily influential? You decide, but we'd never done it. So, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do here. So I have put a bunch of movies on a wheel and I didn't pick any specific movies because I didn't want to lock us in right away. I think it might be interesting to talk about what we should talk about. But what I've put here is uh, our choices for this week are something with Nicolas Cage, which we've never talked about before. Uh, specifically the movie Armageddon by Michael Bay. Something by Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, who is a very, well, not a, I don't, he's not up and coming. He's a very well-respected indie director. Uh, we got Wild Card uh, for Pierre. We have something by Sofia Coppola, uh, who we've also never talked about. We've got something with Tilda Swinton, who I believe is an actress we've never talked about. Uh, something by Catherine Bigelow, the only, the only female director to ever win a directing Oscar. Um, something new. Uh, Wild Card, which is going to be my pick, or something by David Cronenberg, who's another person we've never talked about. And all of these are people that I thought would be interesting to talk about. So without further ado, I am going to spin the wheel. And Brian, at this point, our editor, is going to put in a sound of a wheel spinning. Uh, I'm, as soon as I say that I'm pressing the wheel button. All right, here goes. I'm going to click to spin this wheel. Are you ready, Pierre? I am so ready. Here it goes. We're spinning the wheel. And the, the thing that we're talking about next week is going to be something new. So <laughs> we're talking about something new that came out on, via, on VOD or on Netflix. What do you think? What's, what's new as of right now? Uh, I really wanted to watch something new called... The King of Staten Island. That's perfect because that was literally what I was about to what I was about to say. Perfect. So for next week, we're gonna watch The King of Staten Island. Very exciting. That My is a true Pete classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has he ever been in a movie? I'm sure uh, he has, but he like not in before. a starring role. No, definitely not. And I, this one's very heavily inspired by his own life, so it'll be cool to see. And I like I'm him excited. as a comedian, so. Yeah. So. Next week, we're going to be talking about the King of Staten Island. I hope you guys are as excited for this as we are. I guess this yeah, means it I don't have to fun. change the wheel, because there can always be something new on there. Exactly. Perfect. All right. We will see you next week. Bye.